we're here to bring about change. We can't continuously, you know, focus on the past or what things may or may not have happened. We have to focus on the future and now we can all move forward. As I've mentioned earlier, breaking the taboo is extremely important in order to get this help. And also making sure that if people want help, we get them to appropriate places to provide the right help. Helping to increase awareness programs such as this one, in the school systems, in our schools, in our communities, whatever it takes. And of course, training the parents and the community leaders to really realizing what's going on. I know that we started late, so I'm gonna cut short my next intro, just to say that this is a speaker who is no stranger to anyone, who I've witnessed firsthand giving his life, his soul, for those that are less fortunate, whether it's people suffering from addiction or abuse, or just general, this is a person who has real Ahavas Yisrael, a, a love for any other Jew that is not something that is seen by so many people. And the fact that he had a previous engagement tonight, but still realized the importance of this and came in from Muncie. We know it's late, but we uh, appreciate so much that Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson took this. So Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much, and please join us. I know it's a serious event tonight, and you've had quite a few serious speakers here. So you'll forgive me if I begin with an anecdote. The Gemara says in Masachis Psachim that Rava or Rabbe, before he would begin a lecture or a shir, he would always begin with a milsa tibdichusa, with an anecdotal or humorous comment. So the rabbis would laugh, a badchi rabbana, and then he would begin the shir. There were a few reasons he would do this, but I will follow uh, suit. So, there was a Jew and a Hindu and a politician who went hiking in Texas. And they hiked all day, and they were exhausted. And in the evening, they were searching for a hotel to rest their weary bones, but none was to be found. So they knocked on the door of a Texan farmer in desperation, and they asked him if they could stay in his home for the night. And he said, it's not a problem. The only thing is he has two beds. So one of them would be forced to sleep in the barn. No, the Jew was not going to a barn. The politician is also not going to a barn. So it was left on the Hindu nebuch to go to the barn. The Hindu goes to the barn, and ten minutes later he knocks on the bedroom door. The Jew and the politician open the door, and the Hindu is standing there. They say, what's the problem? He says, there's no way I could sleep in the barn. Why not? He says, there's a cow in the barn. How do you expect a Hindu to sleep with a holy cow in the barn? It's not happening. No, the Jew says, I guess I'll sleep in the barn. The Jew goes to the barn, the Hindu gets into bed. Ten minutes later, the Jew knocks on the door. What now? The Jew says, there's no way I am sleeping in the barn. He said, why not? The Jew says, there's a pig in the barn. How do you expect a Yid, a Jew, to sleep with a Chaza in the same room? It's a pastor. It's inappropriate. Okay, the politician says, I guess I'll have to go to the barn. So the Jew and the Hindu go to bed, and the politician goes to the barn. And ten minutes later, there's a knock on the door. The Jew and the Hindu open the door, and they see the pig and the cow. <laughs> Why? I share with you this... Uh, <laughs> Okay, the men are just getting it, so we'll give them a minute. <laughs> I'll tell you why. <laughs> it's funny, no? Okay, I also just got it. <laughs> Sometimes it takes me some time. I share with you this anecdote, not only because it's funny, but because the word politics has become a dirty word, and for good reason. Politicians often uh, create the way we look at politics. But there's another form of politics, and that is politics that looks spiritual, politics that looks religious, politics that seems holy, 
politics that seems heavenly. Let's call it politics in the name of God. And that politics is as ugly, as repulsive, as grotesque, as abominable, and as destructive, and sometimes even more. Because it knows how to use and employ holy garbs, the garb of religion, the garb of Torah, the garb of spirituality, the garb of zealotry, the garb of God, but it's really politics. And it's important for people to make those distinctions, especially for a young generation today that cannot deal anymore with hypocrisy. I don't know why. When I was younger, I'm still a child, but when I was even a, a younger child, there were so many people around us that we knew were hypocrites. And it, I don't know, it didn't bother us so much. Sometimes the teacher told you to do something, and you knew he didn't do it himself. Some fathers would tell their children to do something. You know they're not doing it themselves. It was almost like part of the game. Today... When children see dishonesty, it drives them mad. When they see teachers, parents, educators, rebbies, who are not completely honest with themselves and with their students and their children, it turns them off in the deepest way. Generally, when they see people who are not working on themselves, people whose religion and spirituality becomes a mask for their own insecurity, their own fear, their own shame. They use religion to run away from their identity. Because remember, religion is a great crutch to run away from your identity. Somebody doesn't have a good marriage in the house, what do you do? Mariv, Mariv, I have to go Davin Mariv. It's wonderful. So it's for secular people don't have this. The religious community, it's great. Tafyoimi, tafyoimi. Tafyoimi, want me with tafyoimi? It's wonderful. I see the women are laughing loud. Okay, I'll talk to your husband. You know, they say an old joke. The Talmud says that Abraham instituted Shacharit, Yitzchak Mincha, and Yaakov Mariv. But Mariv is, the, is really the first prayer because we start with the night. So it should have been Yaakov Mincha. Why did Yaakov institute Mariv, the night prayer, the evening prayer? So the answer is simple. Avram had two children. Yitzchak had two children. Yaakov had 12. When he came home from work in the evening, his wife Leah saw him. Said, Yaakov, Reuven hasn't seen his father in three weeks. Shimon hasn't had a bath in a month. Levi needs some tender love and care. Yehuda's a terrorist. Yisachar has become introverted. Zvulun, I don't even know where he is. Don seems desperate. He's looking for things. Naftali is running all over the place. I want you to stay home. Tell them a story tonight. Give them a bath. Cuddle them in bed. So Yaakov looked up and he said, Mayriv. It's time to go to Mayriv. If I was Yaakov, I would also institute Mayriv. I would also have a Mayriv. It's extremely easy to use Judaism, to use Torah as a cover-up for not dealing with reality, for not being truthful. Huh? You agree with me? I agree. Absolutely. Okay, if the women agree, if the women agree fine. Tell my mother-in-law. <laughs> it's extremely easy for people. It's wonderful. I once asked somebody a question. I told them, I said the following question. I want to ask you something. If you had to make a choice between God and truth, which one would you choose? And the person looked at me with such suspicion and anger and said, what type of heretical question? I said, answer the question. Would you choose God or truth? And he said, of course I would choose God. And I said to him, you just represented 
one of the great tragedies of our times. That in some people's minds, God is not necessarily synonymous with truth. In fact, God sometimes is a substitute for truth. God is actually sometimes an excuse to lie, to deceive, to hide, to repress, to cover up. Well, any religion that believes that God is not about truth and truth is not about God, this religion is idolatry. I told him, you should not be a part of it. Your Judaism is dangerous. It's sickening. It's cultish. It's absurd. It's a lie. It has nothing to do with Judaism. If God does not represent the search for truth, the vulnerability to discover truth, the sacrifice to explore truth, and the commitment to dismiss everything but the truth, what type of God is this? This is called an idol. So yes, even religion can become an idol, sometimes the greatest idol. And I don't know how to say this nicely, so I'll say it not nicely. Judaism can also become an idol. Our gods could become idols. That's the God that's created in my image. And we create gods in our own image. Gods that allow us to justify our ills. Gods that allow us to justify our insecurities. God that allows us to control, to remain in our comfort zones, to remain imprisoned by our lies and our problems without the need to be truthful. If we are not ready to challenge this, then young people whom we have been privileged to educate and inspire will look at us and say, there's no place in this Judaism for me. You see, here's the rule. Kids today, teenagers today, young men and women today, are very deep, they're very honest, they're very profound, they're very sensitive, and they need the real thing. Look at all the children, and look at all the youth, who are what they call of the derech, who are taking drugs, who are alienated, who leave Judaism, and you'll see, they are our brightest, kindest, and most sensitive souls. Isn't that interesting? Ask any mother, is this child, was this child your smartest child? Was this child your most sensitive child? Was this child your kindest child? Was this child your most giving child? And you'll hear the answer. Isn't this fascinating? That means we're losing our best, our brightest, our deepest. Shouldn't this challenge us to our core? And say, they're off the derech? Maybe our, our whole derech is off the derech. Maybe our whole path is off the path. <coughs> Maybe when God became something but the search for truth, and community became about everyone being in the same box, and being accepted meant cover up all truth, so everybody looks perfect. So any sensitive, honest soul vomits. And says, I don't want to be part of this. I'm not going to be part of a lie. I'm not going to be part of a dysfunction. And never mind when sexual abuse is covered up for decades and decades and decades, and the victims become the perpetrators, and the perpetrators become the victims, and when rabbis and teachers and educators and principals and community leaders, those whose mission statement was to stand up for truth, and to stand up for the suffering, and to stand up for people who were hurt, and instead, those people are bullied, and perpetrators are protected? How can any sensitive or smart soul want to be part of this? So we are now facing a time where we have to reevaluate everything, and we have to open up a genuine conversation what Judaism is, what God is, what truth is, what Torah is, and we have to be able to learn about souls. You know, 
There's a fascinating, a fascinating line in the Megillus Esther, in the Book of Esther. It's an incredible line. Of course, there are a lot of incredible lines there, but I want to focus on one that relates very much to tonight's event. Mordechai asks Esther, the first lady, to go into Achashverosh and plead with her husband to let the Jewish people live. So what does she tell Mordechai? She says, I can't. You have to know my husband. He's a madman. He's an alcoholic. He's a meshugana. He's a tyrant. You go into his room without, you go into his palace, you go into his private chamber without permission, you come out with a head shorter. And that never feels good. And I haven't been summoned for 30 days. I can go in, he'll kill me. So Mordechai tells Esther, don't think you're going to be saved. When the Jewish people perish, you'll perish with them. Go find out you're Jewish. Then he tells her, in fact, the Jews will be saved regardless. But you and your father's home will be lost. And then he says a third point. And who knows, if it's not for this reason, that you attained your position as a queen, as part of the malchut, as part of the kingdom, in order to save the Jewish people. And commentators already pointed out that it would seem like the final argument of Mordechai should try to score a home run. And yet he goes from stronger to weaker. First he says, you won't survive anyway. Then he says, the Jews will survive, but you will be lost. And then he says, and by the way, who knows, maybe this is why you got your job. Okay. Is this the ultimate argument? Besides, he says, who knows? When you want to motivate somebody to go do a mission which requires self-sacrifice, you have to be unwavering, unwaveringly confident. Mordechai has to say, and I know that this is why you got your job. He says, me or they, who knows? Who knows? Maybe yes, maybe not. Esther could say, listen, you're not sure. I'm certainly not sure. Maybe I got my job for another reason. And yet, this is what inspired Esther to go into the king. And one of the explanations that's given for this in the holy books is that Mordechai was actually communicating something very deep to Esther. You know, Esther was dumbfounded. She was troubled by something very deep. And the question that was troubling her was, how did I end up in this mess? I was a regular girl. Valedictorian of Bet, Bet Yaakov. Or by Sruchel, or by Sura, or by Srifke, or by Shana. What's the name of the girls' school here? Sheva, Bas Sheva, Sheva, or whatever the name of the beautiful schools are here in Flushing, in Queens, or other communities. I was a great girl. My future was bright. I was supposed to get married, build a beautiful Jewish family, bake challah for Shabbos. And build a future. I ended up in the palace of this Persian monarch. Why me? How, how did this happen? Like, why am I here? This is a deep question. And what did the Yamardachai tell her? He had two words for this. He said, Miodeya. Miodeya is not an expression of doubt, uncertainty. Miodeya is basically, he's telling her there are some things that are higher than that. Miodea, who knows? This is not something that we can wrap our brains around and say, I understand why Esther belongs in this place. You know, you look at your lives. There are some things in your life that you can explain how you ended up there. there are, sometimes you look at certain parts of your life or your children's lives or your loved one's lives and you say, I don't know. Miodea, I don't know. Who can understand? Who can understand the journeys of people? The journeys of souls. All these souls that have been struggling recently. All the overdoses. This is the reason we're here for today. All the people struggling. Those who died. And those who survived. And those who struggle as we speak. 
Why did this happen to them? Why? What went wrong? Can we articulate logically and rationally and understand everybody's journey perfectly? Impossible. We have to look back and say, Mi idea. There are things that are beyond our dots, beyond our ability to really comprehend. We don't understand people's journeys. Our job is not to understand. Our job is to create space and love for people's journeys. And yet, often in our communities, we suffer from something. I'm fine, don't worry. I'm good, I'm good. We suffer from something. We suffer from a malady, and you forgive me if I'll be a little blunt, the women won't mind. And that is, we have this conception that for a family or for a person or for a child or for a marriage to have a good reputation, everybody has to be perfect. The only people I know who are not perfect in the Orthodox community are the people I don't know. The only marriages I know that are not perfect are the marriages I don't know. All other marriages are perfect. The only families I know that are perfect are the families I don't know. We live in this pressure of perfection, and it's a lie. You know somebody who's perfect? You know somebody who doesn't struggle? We created an expectation that is false, is not realistic, is ludicrous, and it puts people in situations where if they're not ready to conform and kill their soul, they basically become stigmatized as weird, as strange, as crazy. So we create standards that are so not real, not authentic. How can you have a relationship with God? How can you have a relationship with truth? If bases of our sociological foundations are sometimes so deeply flawed by the need to deceive and cover up, we need to create space for realness. Space for realness means I have to tune in to what is really happening with me, with each one of my children, and get rid of the shame and the stigma that is associated with children who are struggling, with abuse, with drugs, with mental illness, with psychological, emotional, social, religious, spiritual, physical, and financial struggles that people have. Every soul is on a different journey. No two souls are on the same journey. And we have to be able to respect different journeys. We have to be able to honor different journeys. And we have to understand that we don't have to understand. Mi idea. I have to be able to respect my journey. And I have to be able to respect my child's journey. And I have to be able to respect my student's journey. And sometimes it's very mysterious. And it's very complicated. Don't minimize it. Don't rationalize it. Don't justify it. Don't reduce it. Don't make it small. See it for what it is and realize that God sends souls on different journeys. And some of those journeys are very mysterious. Look at Esther's life. It seemed like an unspeakable tragedy where she ended up. A fine Yiddish maidel, a beautiful Jewish girl. Where did she end up? In the abyss. But you know what? We're all here because of her. So I want to tell you, all these souls that we seem to look at these souls and we say, Nebach, they ended up in the abyss. Instead of using the word Nebach, compassion is important. But realize that our greatest duty is to empower them, to believe in them. And if you'll empower them and believe in them, you will see that the Jewish people will be saved from them. The greatest light will come from these souls because they will open us up to truth. They will open us up to God. They're already opening us up to a more honest conversation. Another component is 
There's no religion, there's no Judaism if people are not speaking honestly about life. We get up at these beautiful places and we say, I want to share Dvar Torah. Stop sharing your Dvar Torah. Talk truth. Everyone has Dvar Torahs to cover up for everything. I'll tell you a nice Vart. Do they use this expression, a nice Vart? What do they use for Vart by Bukhari Jews? What's the word for Vart? Huh? Paraslopa? Okay, I won't try. We, we, ha- we have Verta, we have insights, we have Torahs. What we need is, what we need is raw truth. We need Torahs Chaim. We need raw truth, real life. You know, Purim is named Purim because it means poor. Poor is a goral, a lot. Because Haman cast lots. It says in Zohar that Purim is like Yom HaKippurim. Yom HaKippurim is like Purim. Why? Because Yom Kippur, the high priest, also cast lots. He took two goats, and on one goat he put the word La Hashem, and another goat the word La Azazel. And one goat was offered in the Holy of Holies, and the blood was sprinkled there, and another goat was sent to the Azazel mountain. We call it in English the scapegoat. So the Mishnah says in Shrektet Yuma, chapter 6, that the two goats had to be identical. The way they looked, in their height and in their value. You ever saw two goats identical? They had to be the same height, the same face, and the same money. So Asemus says it had to be twins. Two goats identical. What's the meaning of this? Why? What do we care if the two goats are not identical? I'll tell you why. Sometimes you look at two goats, two souls. One ends up in the Holy of Holies. And you know where the other one ends up? On a cliff. In the abyss. And you look at the two goats and you say, Hmm. He must have had good parents. (laughs) He must have had abusive parents. This goat must have had a functional home. This goat had a dysfunctional home. This goat was taken to therapy when he had a problem. This goat was molested and nobody looked at him. And sometimes we're right. But the Mishnah says, no, sometimes the two goats are identical. Sometimes they're twins. Same father, same mother, same therapy, same height, same look, same money, same blood, Damim, was put into both of them. They both had a wonderful education. They both had caring families. And one ends up in the Holy of Holies and one ends up on the Azazel Mountain. Why? Why? You know what the answer is? It was a Goral. You know what a Goral is? A lot. Miodea. I don't know. A lot. Like a lottery. Goral, Goral. Goral, Purim. It's higher than Das. I don't know. I can't understand. I don't know why souls go through certain things. I know my job is not to understand. My job is to be present, to empower, to believe in them, to be able to be open with the challenge and to be able to really address it. All of you have children, all of you have students, all of you have nephews, nieces, grandchildren, friends' children, friends' grandchildren, communities. As parents, as educators, as rabbis, as teachers, as mechanchim, as mechanchos, as people, as laymen, as businessmen, whatever, or women, whatever field you're in, whether it's connected to you personally or not. The era has come to stop stigmatizing People who have challenges. Good people have challenges. And let me tell you a secret. Deeper people have greater challenges. More sensitive souls have much deeper challenges. Not because they're not good, because they're so good. Depth creates challenge. Yosef Das, Yosef Machov. King Solomon was a wise man. He said the more perceptiveness, the more agony. It's just how it is. Ignorance is bliss. It's not a cliche. People who have big souls feel more. They have more pain. I once heard from Dr. Tversky. He said, I asked him, what did you learn from 60 years dealing with addiction? You know what he said? That addicts are the most sensitive among us. He says, everyone has pain, but they are too sensitive 
and they couldn't brush off their pain and move on because they're too deep and they're too sensitive and they needed much more in order to dull their pain and hence they fell prey to addiction. So when I look at an addict, I can say, "Eh." look what a destructive life he or she is living. And I'm right. But there's something so much truer. Look how sensitive this person is. And if I cannot provide that love, that sensitivity, if there's no space for these types of souls, what are we doing with them? Where are we sending them? And why are we denying challenges and problems that people have? Because our neighbor may find out. I asked the father, why did you send this boy to this school? You know that this school is not for him. It's going to kill him. You know what his answer was? What are people going to say? if they hear that he ended up in that school. I said, wow, and you call yourself a father. (laughs) You're sacrificing the future of your child because what the neighbors are going to say if he's not in this school. I asked another mother, I said, I don't understand. Why did you marry off your daughter to this fellow when you know it's not a good shidduch? She said, you're right, but the family is a very good family. I'm like, so interesting. How long do the family stick together? For seven days. So you made your daughter miserable for 95 years so that the pictures for seven days should look good and people should say, Psh, a nice family. <laughs> we, you could record this. I'm not embarrassed. Where's the seichel? Where's the seichel? Where's the sensitivity? Our whole life, you sell your soul to the devil, you sell your children to conformity, everything is social pressure, and you call this religion and God, feh! This is idolatry. They used to sacrifice their children to the Molech, and we sacrifice our children to social pressures and stigmas, that they should look good because they went to this place or that place. Stop calling it Judaism. This is called idolatry, dysfunction, stupidity, abuse, and absurdity. Be there for your children. Be there for your loved ones. Embrace them for who they are and let them shine. Each one of them is an infinite diamond. And stop protecting yourself and your reputation for people who couldn't care less about you and your children. Trust me. We talk about God and God and God and God and God until it comes to anything that has to do with truth and honesty. And then God gets thrown out of the window because what are they going to say? I don't understand Bukharish. What should I tell you? I said, what is another approach? It's not God. What is another way to talk to I don't care if you talk about God. Just don't create a God that is an idol. It's wonderful to talk about God, but the definition of God is not something that's created in my image, but truth. And if I have a child, I have a nephew, I have a niece, I have a student struggling with something to hide it and put it under the rug. You know, Jews in America used to have Hollywood kitchens and wall-to-wall carpets, you remember? So somebody asked me why they need wall-to-wall carpets. I said, because they had to put a lot of things under the carpet. (laughs) So you had to have a carpet from wall to wall so you could put everything under the carpet. We have a lot under our carpets. And you'll forgive me. But sometimes strong communities, the communities are very strong, and shh, everybody covers up everything. And everybody has to suffer from inside. And no one is allowed to talk. You're not allowed to communicate. You know what happens to sensitive kids? They vomit. They go crazy from this. Spiritually, they vomit. Emotionally, they vomit. You can't create a normal society based on this. I once heard from my Rebbe a very powerful idea. What was the beginning of Jewish exile? You remember when Yosef was sold to Egypt? Why was he sold to Egypt? He was in a pit. Who put him in the pit? His brother Reuben, because he wanted to save him. He wanted to save his brother from the death sentence of his other brother. So he had him in a pit so he could take him out. So why wasn't he there when they sold him? So Rashi says, because they went to eat. After they put him into the pit, they went to eat and he was fasting. 
Why was he fasting? Because nine years earlier, he took the mattress of his father and he relocated it into another bedroom. And it was mixing into the intimacy of his father. So he was fasting for nine years. So he wasn't there when they were eating. So he wasn't there when his brother was sold. So when they sold Joseph to the Egyptians, Reuben wasn't there. He was somewhere fasting and meditating and praying and crying and singing. And when he came back, Joseph wasn't there. He tore his garments. He said, The child is not here. What am I going to do now? Let's understand what caused Joseph to be sold into exile. Not bad people doing bad things. You know what caused Joseph to be sold into exile? A brother who was fasting in order to perfect his character, in order to do tshuva, in order to do repentance, and therefore he wasn't present. In other words, the beginning of exile is not bad people doing bad things. The beginning of exile is when holy and spiritual people are busy fasting, praying, and perfecting themselves, when there's a Jewish child languishing in a pit. When there's a Jewish child in a pit of snakes and scorpions, stop fasting and stop praying and stop focusing on your own perfection and stop going in to meditate in order to get closer to heaven. It's beautiful to fast and pray and meditate and get closer to heaven, but not when there's a child in a pit. When there's a child in a pit, stop fasting, come out of your meditation and save a child from a pit. And when you don't, that's the beginning of Golos, that's the beginning of exile, that's the consciousness that creates exile. Today there are many children in pits, in the abyss, many children, in all communities, queens, but in all communities, and of all types, and of all spectrums, no community is exonerated from this. The Hasidic communities, the yeshivish communities, the Litvisha communities, the modern orthodox communities, the ultra-orthodox communities, the right-wing communities, the centrist communities. All communities. Black hat, white hat, straw hat, yellow hat, Bieber hat, this hat, Hamburg, Strymel, Beckersha, Spodek, half a Spodek, almost Spodek, Barcelino, Chicago, Barcelino. No hat. Hats on Yom Kippur, not on Rosh Hashanah, all types. Children are in the pit, in the abyss of depression, in the abyss of pain, in the abyss of melancholy, in an abyss of addiction, in an abyss of drugs, in an abyss of deep, deep misery and agony. At such a moment, nobody can go focus on their own spiritual perfection. When Joseph, when Yosef is in a pit, at such a moment I have to go down and help extricate him or her from the abyss. How? The first thing is by stop denying it. Stop making believe it's not a problem. Stop saying in my family it doesn't happen. First of all, why don't you find out what's happening in your family? Second of all, why is a nephew not called family? Why is a neighbor not called family? Why is a community member not called family? The first thing is, let's stop denying it. The second thing is, we need to be humble. We need to be able to become vulnerable. We need to be able to strip ourselves from our ego. It's not easy to reevaluate our priorities. Let's face it. These kids put us through the ringer and they shake us up. And sometimes we look in the mirror and we don't recognize ourselves. But you know what? They say that the Chinese survived 5,000 years. You know why? Because the same character they have for the word crisis, they have for the word opportunity. But in Judaism, it gets better. Do you know the word we use for a breakdown in Judaism in Hebrew? Mashber. What else does mashber mean? A birthing stool. A birthing stool. Every breakdown, every crisis can become a springboard for rebirth. Every challenge can become an opportunity for a new discovery. Yes, it's humbling. It's challenging. It's painful. The seed has to decompose in order to germinate and become a tree. That seed was wonderful. You put it in the earth. 
it goes through decadence, but only that way can it become a tree. Our seed also has to decompose. Because we are sometimes so oblivious to what's going on. We really need to be shaken up in a washing machine. Sometimes I feel like I and others have to be put into a washing machine, spinned around. Thank you. In order to, in order to really confront our situation, so denial, gotta go. We need to educate ourselves emotionally, not only intellectually, and to really be open to the truth of each of our children. And sometimes it's not as rosy as we would like it to be. But here's the truth. My child was not created to give me nachas. Nor was my child created to look like me. My child is God's soul sent down on this world and he or she has his journey. I'm here to help him or her succeed in their journey with love, with confidence, and the most important, with empowerment. They say there was a Chinese lady who would go every day with with two buckets to the river, fill them up and bring them home. One bucket was complete, the other one had holes. She was very poor, so she couldn't afford to get a new one. So when she came home each day, one bucket was filled with water and the other one was missing half of its water. One day, the broken bucket opened up its mouth and spoke to the Chinese woman and said to her, It's not fear. I'm so jealous of my friend. The other bucket comes home filled with water, and I come home every day missing so much water. And the Chinese woman tells the broken bucket, tomorrow when we come back home, look at your path. And when the bucket looks out, she sees it sees plants, flowers, lilies, roses planted along its path from the river to the home. It says, what's this? And the Chinese woman says, when I obtained you, I knew about your defects. I knew about your blemishes. So I planted all of these flowers on your path. So each day, as we're going back home and your water trickles out of your bucket, you get to water all of these flowers and all of these plants, which gives our home so much fragrance and delight. Very often, we look at different people. Some buckets seem complete, and some buckets are filled with holes. Sometimes we look at our own buckets and they're filled with holes. And we ask ourselves, couldn't we have been wholesome? Why do we have all these defects and blemishes? But you know, when God created you, He knew exactly the holes in your bucket. But there's something that the broken bucket can accomplish that the other bucket can't. The water that trickles out of it creates plants and flowers and roses and smells that the other bucket can't create. So instead of asking yourself, why me, or why my child, or why this one, or why that one, that question won't help them. A much deeper question is, how do I allow allow this bucket to maximize its unique destiny, its unique calling, its unique mission? A few months ago, Leonard Cohen died. And I believe he once sang and said, when I was young, I worshipped perfection. Now that I'm older, I search for things that have cracks. Because it's the cracks that allow the light to come in. Our communities are cracking. There are cracks everywhere. But if you tune into the cracks, they will allow the light to come in. People who are perfect have no light coming in. Cracks allow the light to come in. They allow real light to come in. Cherish cracks. Cherish the cracks in your life, even though they're painful. Nobody likes cracks. We like perfection. But it's the cracks that open us up to truth. They open us up to God. They open us up to our soul. 
They open us up to a life that's free of judgment, free of judgmentalism, free of bias, free of politics. They open us up to depth. They provide us with wisdom. They provide us with perception and with a lot of perceptiveness. So Mordechai tells Esther, Mi idea. I don't know. Some things I don't know. I don't understand. I really don't understand. But the most important thing is, I don't have to understand. I have to believe in you. And I have to believe in ourself, in myself. We have to believe in each one of these souls and we have to believe in ourselves. And we have to believe in their infinite power, in their infinite resources, and we have to believe in ourselves that we can expand our horizons and change the dynamics. But for this, don't be afraid to rewrite the script of your life. You see, some of us are trained to think certain ways. And when we see a crisis, we respond in the predictable way. What's the line? Round up the usual suspects. So we have the same thing, you know? Something happens, we have these meetings, these asifis, we round up the usual suspects, we blame the women for tzniyas, and we all go home and we're happy. <laughs> right? A crisis happens in a community, you blame the women, the blah, 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 you blame the internet, and everybody is great. Everybody runs back to their classes, their comfort zones, and to their iced coffee, yoga, gym, Pilates, whatever you're into. Stop rounding up the usual suspects. I have to be ready to say, maybe everything I know is worthless. I actually don't know anything. I'm going to be like Rabbi Akiva, who at the age of 40 said, I don't know anything, I want to start over. That's greatness. Greatness is... Control, alternate, alt, delete. How do you do it? Remind me. Control, alt, delete. And a big restart. Have the courage. You know, this Fasemis rise, there was a Jew known as the Yid HaKadosh. You ever heard of the Yid HaKadosh? Some of the greatest Hasidic masters. Why they call him the Yid HaKadosh? Every Jew is a Yid HaKadosh. Every Jew is holy. You know what he said? He said, because the Yid HaKadosh had the courage that every day, he became a Jew again, just like a convert. Every day for him was like a conversion. The Judaism of yesterday did not work for today. That's what I feel like where we are today. We have to all convert to Judaism. And those who are Jewish for many years need it even more. And those who are Jewish for 2,500 years, you know what I'm talking about? Communities that are here for 2,500 years, they actually need to convert. Because we're so used to our old gods, we get stuck. So I have to be able to say, you know what? Let me learn a new approach. Maybe I don't get it. Maybe I really did not get it. The whole way of educating people by not communicating with them in a real, honest, powerful, loving way is ineffective today. Methods that some of us thought were excellent and impeccable are turning out to be a mockery and futile and ineffective at least for many, I can't say for everybody but for many in generally, in general today you have to treat children not so much like children we treat nine year olds as though they were babies today already at six they're teenagers seven year olds no more than their 90 year old grandmothers this doesn't mean children are not children, but it means treat your nine-year-olds with deep intelligence and respect because they understand everything. <laughs> Never mind your 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds. Talk to them. Listen to them. Communicate with them. Go out of your space and go into their space. Spend time with them on their terms, not on your terms. A father comes to me and he says, my son doesn't want to spend time with me. I said, okay, I also don't like spending time with you. What's the problem? <laughs> I didn't say that. I just thought it. 
I'm like, I was thinking, like, I'm waiting for this meeting to be over, so I don't blame your son. I'm like, well, what type of time do you offer your son to spend with you? He says, I always ask him to learn with me, and he never wants to. I said, oh, yeah, kids, a lot of kids don't like learning with their father. He says, that's a problem. I said, okay, but what does your child love? He says, I don't know, he loves sports. I say, for example, does he love horseback riding? He says, oh, he's crazy about horseback riding. I said, why don't you go horseback riding with your son once a week? He says, that's not education. I want to learn with him. I said, one day, but first bond with him. Become close. Your child needs a father. Go horseback riding with him once a week. He says, that's bittel Torah. It's, it's, it's wasting time of Torah. I said, listen, that's my advice to you. Start going horseback riding with him once a week for a good few hours. And you'll build, you'll build a trust language. So he tells me, I cannot take responsibility for such a sin. To waste time of Torah and go horseback riding. I said, I have an idea. When you die and come to heaven, and they'll want to punish you for going horseback riding with your son, say, it was Rabbi Y.Y. Jacobson's advice. <laughs> I said, I'll tell you why. I'm anyway going to hell. I know you're going to paradise. I'm going to hell anyway. So they'll add this. They'll add this, that I told you to go horseback riding with your son. It's not the end of the world. In fact, maybe that will be my paradise. Maybe that will, that's what I'll get paradise for. That you spent some time with your son. You gave your son a little, a little bit of fatherly love, fatherly trust. He says to me, you're serious? I should say this in heaven? I looked at him, I said, you know, if I was your son, I also wouldn't want to spend time with you. You'll forgive me. Stop analyzing and stop dissecting. Go spend time with your child. You created a certain model of what a relationship looks like completely on your terms. You know nothing about your son. You know nothing about his life. You know nothing about his interests. You know nothing about his heart. You don't have a child. You have an imaginary child that you created in your own image. That's not your boy. Why don't you learn who your boy is? Because you don't want to learn who your boy is. Because it's not the boy you dreamt about. Well, guess what? Life is about reinventing yourself every day for what God wants. I want to share something with you and end with this. There was a boy who went to Vietnam to fight. He survived. He called up his father Thursday. And he says, Dad, I arrived in California from Vietnam the army base, I can come home on Monday. Wow, son, amazing. Dad, one request. My best friend in my platoon, he stepped on a mine, he lost an arm, he lost two legs. He has no family. We're best friends. Can I bring him home with me? Take care of him. Father says, son, that would be a big mistake. You know, we're going to be nice to him on the outside, but inside we're going to resent him. He's going to make our lives miserable. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be very difficult. He says, Dad, I promise you, you're going to love this boy. He is the sweetest, brightest, most charming kid in the world. You're going to love him. He says, Son, I don't have a doubt that I'm going to love him, but internally I'm going to hate him. Internally, I'm going to be miserable because he's living in my home. This is not my responsibility. It's the government's responsibility. They will put him in a home that can help him. They will pay for him. You can go visit him. But this is, we don't want such a person in our home. It's really not going to work. Your mother and your father are going to despise it. I'm telling you the truth. He says, Daddy, thank you. Hung up the phone. So that Sunday, the father gets a call. It was the police. And the police said that there was a soldier who came back from Vietnam and he took his life over the weekend. He jumped off a roof. They think he may be related to him. If he could come identify the body. So he came and he identified the body. It was his son. And he saw that his son was missing the arm and the two legs. His son was not talking about his best friend. He was talking about himself. 
This is a story someone sent to me. I'm not here to judge anybody in the world, especially not a person who has his own challenges. And as the Mishnah says, never judge anybody until you don't reach their space. Until I don't wear somebody else's shoes, I don't judge them. And since I never wear anybody else's shoes, I barely fit into my own shoes, I don't judge anybody. But this story taught me a lesson, and I'll tell you what it is. Sometimes we're ready to accept the children that look like the children we hoped we're going to have. We're ready to accept our loved ones as long as they fit into the mold of what my student, my child, my grandchild, my daughter, my son, my teenager is going to look like. As long as you fit into that mold, I'm here for you. I love you. I'll do everything for you. I'll pay for your yeshiva. I'll pay for your college. I'll pay for your university. I'll marry you off. I'll pay for you to learn in Kailu for 29 and a half years. As long as you look like the one that I need you to look like. So I could sit down and say, ah, I have nachas from you. The moment my child looks different, the moment my child is on a different journey, Suddenly, the worst in us comes out. I have no space for you. Some parents will throw their children out of their homes. Some parents will keep their children in their homes, but they will resent them, and they will have only a negative attitude towards them. But there comes a time in your life when I say to you, ask not what your child can do for you. Ask what you can do for your child. And ask not how everything fits into your picture or my picture. My question has to be, how do I transcend my comfort zones and say, I'm going to be here for you? I know it hurts, and I know it's painful, and I know it's not the journey I wanted, and I know it's not the journey that I expected. But let me tell you something, my dear friends. If you go on this journey... It's not only your child who will be saved. You will also be saved. It's not only your child who will find a new life. As hard as it is to believe, you will also discover a part of yourself and a part of God that you never knew about. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm not sure how I can uh, continue. One second. Um, but, and I apologize that we're a lot later than we thought. So if people want to stay here and talk to us, we'll do that. Um, also, there is a, a woman here that we were going to try to get her to speak. I can't, Mrs. Gardner. I, we don't have time. I'm sorry, but I'm going to see if people want to talk to you privately. I'll gladly set that up as well. So there is a woman here who has a lot of experience in dealing with addiction and has a, lost a child who's willing to speak to people and share some of her experiences. The Narcan training is going on upstairs for anyone who wants to go to get their own Narcan kit. Um, and again, I'm just going to leave with one closing remark. We must follow the advice that we've heard so many times here tonight. And it is one message to go over and over again. We must remove the stigma, the shame, and the embarrassment from being that blockade, from letting us get our loved ones the help that they desperately need. We must live our lives for those around us who need us and not for ourselves to feel good about what we're doing. I truly hope that we don't need to have any of these types of events anymore. And I truly hope for the day that these issues will not happen and I don't have to be nervous at 3 o'clock in the morning when my phone rings that it's another carbon, another sacrifice that was taken from us at a young age. But until that day happens, we have to keep fighting this fight, getting our schools to bring in education and awareness, getting our schools, getting our communities, community centers. And for that, I know it's 11 o'clock on a Matzah Shabbos late night. And it's so appreciated that everybody that's here stayed as late as you did and show that you cared. And please, if there's anything that we can do for you, anything Amudim can do for you, anything any of these community organizations or leaders can do, please reach out. Do not be shy. 
We never know who the next life is that we're going to save or turn around. And it could be someone extremely close to us. Thank you all very much and have a good night.